This is Ron Oral. You're listening to the Activist Investments Today podcast. And I'm super excited to welcome to the program Diane McKeever, a rare woman activist investor and founder of IDES Capital. Just a little bit of background, Dan launched IDES Capital in 2015, and she has lots of experience leading activist campaigns as she started a career at longtime insurgent fund Barrington Capital Group, where she became its youngest partner. Just a little background, I think one of the first uh, activist campaigns I wrote about for the deal was a Barrington Capital effort in 2001 at a company called Liquid Audio. So, uh, <laughs> so I thought that you would find that amusing, but okay. She's been, a public, <laughs> she's been a public company director multiple times over and has served as a member of the Council of Institutional Investors Corporate Governance Advisory Council. Welcome, Dan. Thanks for taking the time. Hi, Ron. It is such a pleasure to be here with you today. And I I just want to thank you for having me on this show. I I have to say I can think of very few people who have had their finger on the pulse of activism over such a long period the way that you have. And so it's really been over the entire course of my career as an activist investor. Okay, I appreciate that. So Dan, maybe tell me a little bit about IDES and how it was formed. And maybe if you want to talk a little about your background. Great. So first of all, I'll just start with my background, which is very short and sweet. I can get that out of the way. I have exclusively been an activist investor over my entire career. I, I joined Barrington Capital Group in 2001, straight out of my undergraduate education in chemistry and chemical engineering. But I had had some exposure to value investing and was fortunate to meet the co-founders of Barrington and, and really liked the idea of activism. And so it's been a very focused career, not only with respect to activist investing, but also activist investing within small and mid-capitalization public companies, which is, is really where I think the real opportunity for activists exists. Tell me about IDES and how it was formed. Like uh, You guys typically uh, own how many positions at one time? Yeah, so the formation of IDES is really predicated upon some key observations over the course of my career. And, and many that were observations I had early on in my career, starting at my time at Barrington Capital. And I, I, there were many observations that made the opportunity to launch IDES a front and center opportunity. But there are three that I, you know, were kind of most important that I'll share with you. First and foremost, as you mentioned, I am a diverse activist investor. Activist investing isn't isn't the most diverse field, and, and really investment management isn't especially diverse either. And then moreover, being an investor who focuses as an activist in small and mid-capitalization public companies, you know, I had really that front row seat many times over, including as a director myself, to see that small and mid-capitalization companies are especially challenged on diversity, equity, and inclusion policies and practices. And so for an activist, a change agent who you know is regularly nominating directors to boards, this seemed like a real opportunity, particularly since, you know, again, from that front row seat, I'd been able to see that the benefits of diversity, the expanded conversations, the expanded experiences, which lead to expanded opportunities. And then on the flip side, really the perils of a lack of diversity, including groupthink, which can create a host of substantial risks for companies. So that was really one of the first observations that is really the foundation for the opportunity and really the need to launch Hides Capital. Mm-hmm. Um, the second uh, real observation for me was, um, you know, as an activist investor, a big part of my diligence process is meeting with and working with best-in-class operators within industries that we are considering investing in or that we may have an investment in. We have a concentrated portfolio at Hides. We typically own somewhere around 12 names. And so we really need to understand 
and to probably a greater degree than many more diversified investors, the companies and industries that we're invested in. And then as activists who are disseminating public platforms, you know, we really want to be credible. We really want to bring great ideas and substantiated ideas into the public forum of stakeholders. And so a big part of the work that I do, again, is meeting with these best-in-class operators. Over the course of my career, one question that I've always asked operators is, what are the key decisions that you made that kind of set you on this path of the tremendous success that you've had? And I can tell you, and it truly is astounding, that the answers, they always sound something like this. Treating my employees well. That is why I'm sitting here today. I've always wanted to treat my employees well, and, and they in turn treat our customers well. Being a respected member of our community, I want to be a good steward uh, to my community. Um, Making sure my employees have a portion of their compensation that either is or or behaves just like equity, because it means that they seek to proactively, uh, you know, drive the top line and resolve risks on a a quicker timetable. And what's really fascinating, I mean, the ESG and sustainability today, they've become, you know, these incredible terms that dominate, you know, front page headlines, um, you know, and they've maybe even become charge terms. But these best-in-class operators and practitioners, they're not calling these policies and practices ESG, but that's exactly what they are. And so that, you know, was really kind of the second key observation for me. And then finally, one that I would add that I think is extremely important was that early on in my career, I started to take note that the very biggest institutional investors were developing in-house corporate governance practices. And today they're really called in-house investment stewardship practices. And as I pointed out, and and I think you understand, you know, as a concentrated activist investor, to me, that was just fascinating because, you know, I had seen again firsthand how incredibly important corporate governance and and, and these expanded ideas within sustainability are to companies, stakeholders, including shareholders, especially long-term shareholders. And it was fascinating to me that these extremely large firms that, unlike me, not concentrated at all, extraordinarily diversified, sometimes they're replicating indices, sometimes it's a black box equation that drives their funds, but they nevertheless see incredible importance in their portfolios to these strong policies and practices. And so, you know, I I guess it's like an air quote coincidence, the coincidence of two very different types of investors, nevertheless, understanding that these policies and practices were important to long-term value creation, to me, felt like a confirmation of other observations that I was having. And and so it really set the stage for launching I. And IDES, we are a full-fledged activist investor. We, by and large, work constructively and happy to say so, have very positive interactions with corporate boards, with management teams, and really with a broadened base of corporate stakeholders at our portfolio companies. And when we engage, we not only engage around the three traditional pillars of activism, which you know I consider those to be operational improvements capital allocation improvements, and strategic enhancements and strategic execution enhancements. But we've added a fourth pillar focus, which is really the focus on ESG best policies and practices. Okay, so this, that's all really interesting. And definitely, I have also noticed this kind of expansion of stewardship teams doing governance and ESG type uh, in thoughts at large asset managers. And I was interested in your point, how you talk to these operators and what they've you know, that, you know, these are the things that they look for, the successful operators. But I don't know, my sense is you you don't necessarily allocate your capital to these best operators. (laughs) You find kind of undervalued companies. And I wanted to maybe talk about 
one of them within the context of, and we'll get into the diversity and E and S of the ESG in a bit, but you know, I've been long uh, focused a lot on dual class share structure companies, which give insiders uh, control of the board. I was actually on the phone recently with an activist at a luxury brand company, Richemont, in Europe today, and his campaign related to an insider controlled company there, very common in Europe. Here in the US, it seems like it's increasingly becoming common. I could call it an ex- existential threat to activist investors. And this is this idea of dual class share structure companies giving insiders, typically founders, control of the board. And so I know institutional investors for years have raised complaints about these structures. And I'm seeing funds uh, launch campaigns and a number of these companies, though, with surprising levels of success. And one most recently was at Peloton, which is an insider control company. And an activist was able to get the CEO to step down and major changes there, despite not having ability to do a proxy contest to get directors elected. So you come across an interesting situation, one of your investments at Monroe, with a very unusual dual class structure, uh, giving one director, an investment banker, Peter J. Salomon, control of the vote. So tell me about it. And what are you trying to do there? Sure. Well, starting off with a very important point that you made at the beginning, we are very, very different from, I would say, the very, very vast majority of ESG-focused funds. And you're right, we're not looking for companies that already have diverse boards or that already have strong sustainability practices. We are investing, as I've done over the course of my entire career, based off of the valuation opportunity within a company. And as activists, you know, our ability to identify catalysts that will improve the company's performance and improve long-term shareholder value. And so, you know, in that regard, ESG is no different. It's not a prerequisite. It's one of the changes that we are seeking to facilitate and to make improvement and be rewarded for having done so in the form of an appreciated stock price. And so I, I think it's great that you picked up on that. Yes, Monroe is a long-term investment that we have had. And I'll say kind of off the bat, you know, eyes were big believers in one share, one vote. You know, in other words, we, we really believe that all shareholders should have an equal voice and an equal vote in the governance of the companies that they own. And you're right, Monroe has a multi-class share structure. It's a preferred share that we have really decided and seen to be one of the worst that we've encountered. Monroe's been a serial underperformer. And I I think that that goes hand in hand beyond just kind of a multi-class share structure. When we see extraordinarily weak or poor corporate governance policies and practices, as well as more broadly ESG and sustainability practices, we tend to see companies that are underperformers. There are exceptions, but the vast majority of cases that we've encountered, that's the case. They go hand in hand. And so it's not a surprise. Monroe, with what we consider to be a worst-in-class corporate governance structure, has been a serial underperformer. And while at eyes, we've owned the stock for quite a long time now, and we've earned a market-beating rate of return in our position, really that's purely because we have extremely strict valuation parameters and we've sized our position accordingly around those parameters. Traditional long-term investors, and I think it's even important to point out, you know, even short and midterm length investors and owners, they have not been rewarded in this company. And that's due to a variety of factors. But at the heart of that underperformance, we really view this multi-class share structure to be a big part of the problem. And, you know, just to kind of lay it out, we've termed it a corporate golden share. Um, and that's because we read the company's documents, provided that the Class C preferred owner has at least one share 
there in this Class C preferred worth, you know, a little over $1,000, that owner has a veto right over every single matter that goes to the common shareholder vote, common shareholders, which own approximately $1.5 billion in value as expressed through their votes. And so this is really just as retrograde and as out of touch as it gets. And the reality at this point is that this is no longer a theoretical power, this veto power. Last year, I had submitted a shareholder proposal that appeared on the company's proxy asking that the board take all steps to initiate a recapitalization supported by 88% of Monroe's voting shareholders, voting common shareholders. I mean, that's huge. I mean, we don't see that level of support very often, even on these kind of governance matters. That was a huge cross-section of investors supported at 88%. Wow. Yeah, absolutely. It was a tremendous mandate. And and I've been told, you know, there's different ways that people calculate support, whether it's the shares that showed up or the shares outstanding. But I've been told it was in the top five shareholder proposals for the entire 2021 proxy season in terms of that common shareholder vote. And so undeniably an incredibly clear mandate to shareholders. And then, you know, you kind of fast forward a year later and this board, which is an extremely long tenured board, has been an extremely non-diverse board. They've done nothing. In their proxy, they, they said that they did speak with shareholders, but they disclosed it as a risk factor that they, for the first time, this company has been public for nearly 30 years. They're now identifying this mechanism, this Class C preferred that's been in place since the company's IPO as a material risk factor and and really had taken no steps despite, again, that 88% vote. And so we at IDES, we decided this is just completely ridiculous and we're going to launch a vote no campaign, a withhold campaign. Another kind of unsurprisingly strong mandate was sent to Monroe. Two of the five directors that were up for re-election were ousted by the common shareholder vote. And the board has absolutely conceded that fact. And we believe that those directors, given the shareholder mandate, need to step down. And the company has further acknowledged that a clear message has been sent to them with respect to the company and assuming that that's related to corporate governance practices. And so this is a work in progress, but the answer is really quite simple. All shareholders should have one vote. Yeah. And just to be clear, they weren't actually ousted. Uh, it was an uncontested election. A majority withheld their vote against the, those two directors. And in normal circumstances, those directors would submit resignation and they would resign. Although in these withhold vote situations, I've often seen directors remain on despite the majority of voting shares opposing them. And we actually have a term zombie directors, if it's <laughs> yes. that are on the board. So Okay. Well, we, we, you know, we see it as common shareholders have effectively ousted these directors. And you're right. I think that term that you mentioned is probably appropriate for the situation. Yeah. The mandate for their you know, continued service on the board just doesn't exist. Yeah. Okay. Well, it's interesting. We'll see what, what happens there. And clearly, shareholders really don't have, there's no accountability among directors for shareholders there. Okay, so you have a, a campaign at another company that, that has a kind of a, a diversity angle. Uh, maybe you could tell us a little bit about that, safety insurance. And uh, they took steps to improve their ESG as well as their capital structure once you launch your campaign. So tell us about that. Yeah, and that's correct. And I, I know we're going to get to some constructive engagements that we have, which is I outlined at the beginning. That's really the vast majority of our engagements. But I guess in certain ways, similar to Monroe, Safety Insurance is, is another company that's been an underperformer. And really, we see it has a different entrenchment issue, but nevertheless, a, a, an entrenchment issue. 
And kind of stepping back and more broadly on ESG, IDES, we, we really front load our campaigns in many ways with these ESG policy and practice focus, and really with a broad-based engagement with corporate stakeholders. And that's really elevated our dialogues. I would say that's a big difference, maybe an unexpected difference with this focus that we have at IDES. We tend to have these more productive conversations and, and really front loading our focus to, to work on improvements to ESG policies and practices we've seen that it sets an incredibly strong foundation for companies to then go on and make better operational decisions, make better and improved capital allocation decisions, and really excel from a strategic execution standpoint. And as I said, it tends to elevate our dialogues with stakeholders, including with management and the board. But in the case of, we discussed Monroe and safety, we're really talking about outliers. When you see IDES surface in a more aggressive way with a company through shareholder proposal, or in the case of Monroe with hold campaign, or with respect to safety, we actually took the step of notifying the company of our intent to nominate directors. That's really an outlier situation. And that's really a scenario where we have really tried behind the scenes. You always work first and foremost behind the scenes in a very quiet way because everybody's best interests should be aligned. So we really try with safety to reach out to the company and to the board. And actually, after speaking with management and, and then subsequently notifying management that we wanted a conversation with the board, we were actually told that since we'd spoken with the CEO, who was the director, we had in fact already spoken with the board, which was a shocker. The board is not one voice. It's not one vision. It's meant to be a group with a really robust dialogue to lead the company in the best possible direction for its stakeholders. And so that was a surprise. But we stepped back and, and we kind of said, well, we're going to lay out some thoughts for the company. And so we wrote a, a pretty detailed letter that we sent, again, behind the scenes privately early fall of last year to the board. And we didn't get a response. It was a surprise that we kind of laid out the company's underperformance across a host of different issues. Everything from, as you mentioned, several ESG and policy and practice deficiencies to capital structure, which we believe could be improved and optimized to the performance of the company's stock. And we received no response. Is this the one that, uh, where the company has no earnings calls or something? Or, uh... That's right. Yeah, which is also an outlier. In fact, I've never, I, I, I've come across one other company in my career that I did take a pretty hard look at that didn't host earnings calls, but it's exceedingly rare. I mean, I, I think I could count on one hand the number of companies that I've bumped into that don't host earnings calls. That's a big thing that I've noticed with activists. I mean, the uh, the activists you know, often find companies that you know, don't have a lot of analyst coverage and their companies are really not, those companies are really not trying to get the coverage so that, and, and then people don't understand what the, the business operations are. So, you know, they just don't have the spotlight shone on them that, that they need to get the shareholder value. Anyways, I know that's only one facet of the campaign, but I think it's telling. I think it's telling too. I mean, I, I would count it amongst kind of many potential indicators of entrenchment. I mean, this is a public company. This is not a company where there's any kind of meaningful ownership amongst the fiduciaries. Not that that is an excuse either. If you're a public company, you know, you know, it's our belief you should communicate publicly and you should have those public forums for shareholders to ask questions so that all shareholders can hear management's answers to questions at the same time and not on kind of a preferential one-off direct phone call basis. So I think it's you know great that you raised that point because it was something that we certainly took note of. And again, also you mentioned sell side coverage, which is still something the company has yet to rectify. And so I think 
yeah, there's a major missed opportunity there that the company should take some action to correct. But yeah, so we sent that letter and the board didn't respond. And, and we had been building our position at that point. It was approaching almost a year ownership. And in one of the many weaker corporate governance practices, the company had a very, very early notification window for notification of director nominees. And so we did make that decision to submit to the company our notification that we were nominating to incredibly well-qualified, both diverse candidates for election to the company's board. And even another first for me, the company did not respond. And I can tell you that I've had companies that didn't respond to letters. It's, it's extremely rare. But I've never had a company not uh, respond to a notification of intent to nominate. And so, you know, it again kind of raises the eyebrow that this is an, a major entrenchment issue. And in fact, I think it should have to go back, but I think it was over three weeks or roughly three weeks before we actually got on a call with um, a company director. So, but they, 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 they did actually shake up the board a bit uh, with your uh, following your effort there, right? And, and uh... Yeah, so we moved very far down the path. I mean, we began to actually make filings with the SEC and, and ultimately the company did, we understand it, retain some advisors and they likely in recognition at the upcoming meeting that their odds were not great to prevail unless they made some very, very significant change. They did undertake course of action to, to make several improvements that really you kind of look at the letters that we did publicly disseminate and, and it really is in uh, lockstep with the suggestions that we had for the company. So um, some some major board refreshment. There was a longtime director that had had um, in prior elections pretty significant withhold votes against him and he stepped off the board. Two new independent directors were added to the board and you know these are directors that certainly do improve the company's pretty poor diversity within the boardroom. So you know there was an appointment of a director who is the first First, as we understand it, racially, ethnic, or multiculturally diverse director to the board, and also the first instance that the company has three concurrently serving gender diverse directors on the board. They've taken some steps to improve capital allocation. We think that they can go so, a lot further. One other thing, they also put in a lead independent director for the first time, right? Correct. They did. <laughs> they did take. I, some I, I, I'm always shocked. Like I was talking to an activist this morning about a company and uh, they lack a lead independent director. You think that these companies would have lead independent directors, particularly when the ex- executives is our, our chairman. But anyways, that, that, that was interesting that they appointed a lead independent director after you had kind of nudged them a bit, right? That's correct. And they did take some additional steps that we do think improve the board structure. They've adopted some term limits for committee chairs and turnover, I think, in committees can always be helpful. They've taken some pretty big steps, again, on the capital allocation side, although we think they can go a lot further. So they resumed their share repurchases actually right around the time that we submitted our nomination. As we understand it, it was over the course of the fourth quarter of last year. And that was the first time that they had repurchased stock in more than a year, but they also ended their repurchase allocation by $50 million. And that was the first adoption of a plan increase in almost, I, I think it was just under 10 years. So the first time that they've done that in a while, they did take some steps to improve shareholder rights. Again, we think that they could go a lot farther, but you know, they certainly have made change and we're standing by. We are, it's a very large position for us and we are not bound by any kind of agreements with the company. And so we will keep our options open. Okay. Well, it would be interesting to see what happens at safety insurance this year. So yeah, I'll be keeping an eye on that. 
Yeah, and I, I, I want to talk a little bit about entrenchment, but when I step back and I think about just our portfolio, you know, I think one of the interesting hallmarks of entrenchment that, again, we're seeing in both Monroe and, and we've called out publicly in Monroe, but also in safety insurance that really raises a tremendous red flag. Both of these companies, long-term underperformers relative to their peers or market indices. And you look at the board and confounding fact for both is that the exception of the company's executives. So in the case of Monroe, that's its CEO. And in the case of safety, that is the CEO and the former CEO. They do not have any other directors that have operational experience within the industries that they operate in. So that for us, I mean, talk about a potential hallmark of entrenchment. You're stepping back and you're on a board and you've been underperforming. You kind of scratch your head and you think, you know, wouldn't it be helpful to add at least one director? with operating experience and, 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 and I mean, real P&L and capital allocation and strategic decision-making experience within the boardroom. And so that's something, you know, again, for us and louder in these names, and, and we're going to get to some of the constructive engagements, but that's just one of the kind of hallmarks for us where a higher profile engagement is likely warranted to drive sorely needed change. I have to say, I've been surprised by how many companies I've covered and the makeup of the board where I've seen, you know, for example, uh, there's this one huge oil and gas company that comes to mind that has people with experience in the oil and gas industry on the board. And I, I'd like to say that it surprised me that they don't have anyone with operational experience, but it doesn't surprise me. So we've spoken about two of your very public kind of activist campaigns. And uh, like you've mentioned earlier on, I know that the vast majority of investments entail a constructive and collaborative engagement with management team and boards approach. So maybe you could give us a couple examples where companies have been receptive to your engagement. Yeah, that's right. I mean, the vast majority of work that we're doing at IDES, you know, you will likely not hear about um, because it's very much behind the scenes. It's collaborative. It's positive. It's constructive. And I would say one of the really unexpected benefits of augmenting the activist toolkit with our focus, and again, our really front-loaded focus on improvements to sustainability and ESG policies and practices, is that it elevates our dialogue with corporate stakeholders, including management teams and boards. And so it really lays that foundation for what is, you know, far more often than not. And I'm thinking somewhere, you know, around 90% of our investments have this kind of very positive, collaborative, constructive trajectory. So two investments that, you know, certainly fit that mold and that description are IDE's long-term over three-year investments in both Arcosa, symbols ACA, and graphic packaging, ticker symbol is GPK. First, I'll talk about Arcosa. Arcosa is a conglomerate company, and that's really fertile ground for IDES. Conglomerates you know, are compelling for a number of reasons. They represent an opportunity to streamline the company structure, which makes it a company that is more easily valued by investors. You tend to want to keep the crown jewel businesses, and so often that merits a re-rating in the form of an increased multiple. But it also simplifies execution and and especially capital allocation decision-making for the company itself. When Arcosa hit our radar, it was a spin from a a larger company and it came out itself as a conglomerate and was really a very well-run company with high-quality businesses when we found it. And nevertheless, over the course of our hold period and over the course of our engagement with the company, we've seen a really incredible transformation in Arcosa. At the outset of our engagement, as we often do, we sent the company a letter and focused on a number of ESG themes, including sustainability reporting, which the company was not doing. 
Then we also, again, focused on the company's conglomerate structure. And we've seen, you know, tremendous improvement to each one of those kind of two main points. First and foremost, shortly after our engagement began, our COSA did initiate sustainability reporting. And, and I think that's really important because this is a company, it's two core segments, construction aggregates, which we're going to get to. It's a really interesting transformation that they've had within the aggregates business, as well as wind tower components. These are great sustainability themed businesses. But in addition, to highlighting the businesses and the inherent sustainability focus within each, the sustainability reporting has really given investors the opportunity to understand other improvements that Arcosa is making. So for example, over the course of our hold period and, and with the sustainability reporting, we've seen Arcosa reduce its water usage and its greenhouse gas emissions. We've seen a real improvement to workplace safety in the form of a 60% reduction in incident rates. We've seen a really expanded and augmented diversity, equity, and inclusion practice. And importantly, from a governance perspective, those improvements to diversity have been mirrored in the boardroom, Mm -hmm. um, which has also undergone improvement to governance policies and practices. As one example, they've begun the process to stagger the board, which is something that we think is really, really important. Oh, absolutely. That's fascinating. And so you feel like this helps attract some more ESG-type investors? Absolutely. I mean, we've seen upticks in their ratings from a sustainability standpoint, and that puts it on the radar. But I want to get into the more capital allocation and, and really the operation and, and strategic vision of the company. Because again, at IDES, while we certainly have a focus on ESG and sustainability, that's in the form of an expansion of the activist toolkit. And in no way means that we've abandoned a focus on operational capital allocation and strategic enhancement. Again, what's really important with our COSA, and it's also true in the case of graphic packaging, we're going to talk about sustainability and ESG. It's deeply entwined with both of these companies' tremendous success in driving shareholder value and outperformance relative to the market over our hold period. And we believe on a very long-term basis, that's going to continue to be true. So in the case of Arcosa, again, it was well run, um, but we did highlight the opportunity to streamline the business. And that's actually something that Earlier this year, they've begun to do within their transportation segment, which and by by streamline you mean uh, like they've divested non-core parts of the business or something. Correct. Okay. That's correct. And, and, you know, transportation, they've got a nice business there. But, you know, compared with our other two segments, we believe that those are businesses that from a capital allocation standpoint, they're they're more crown pool type businesses and it's really where they can focus their efforts. And I would highlight, again, they've got this incredible wind tower component business, but an incredible transformation is in place within their construction aggregates business. And aggregates, I've been an investor now for over 20 years. Aggregates is a space that I've always followed just because it has some really interesting dynamics. It tends to maintain pricing power across economic cycles. You don't see many businesses that are able to do that consistently. And so I've always looked at the aggregate space, but it's always also kind of from an ESG perspective, been a bit of an outlier from my perspective because you're talking about quarries. And so what's really been amazing to be a part of and really witness the management team aboard at Arcosa do just an amazing job with is that over the course of our whole period, Arcosa has transformed its construction business into the leading domestic producer of what are known as recycled aggregates. And this is just really a win-win-win. It's a win for customers, it's a win for shareholders, and it's a win for the environment. And so to break down what recycled aggregates are, effectively, this is a company that has portable crushers 
and they're sending those portable pressures out to buildings or roads or bridges or other kind of engineered structures that need to be torn down. And right there on the spot, they can crush and repurpose those materials for use in another project, sometimes a project at that exact site. And so again, this is just a win-win-win because this is done at you know great value for customers. It's the same or better margins. So it's great for the company's profitability. And it's a win for the environment in the form of, again, reduced need to head to a quarry, but also reduced landfill. And so it's been unbelievable. You see Arcosa and it's, you know, there are some very, very large construction and aggregates businesses out there. But over, you know, just this, these few years, they have transformed and they're now the market leader in this incredible, sustainable product offering called Recycled Aggregates. Maybe just very briefly tell us about graphic packaging. What it- yeah, so graphic packaging is just a, you know, another great company, very well run. And it was really a product of seeing the very largest consumer companies make commitments that they were going to, in some cases by the year 2025, have fully circular packaging. So that's a great sustainability theme. And we knew that there were going to be certainly winners on this packaging supply side from those commitments. And so we were looking to find some exposure to that theme. And we found found graphic packaging that was really very much under the radar and had actually at the time we initiated our position had made a really, really important and strategic acquisition that we thought would benefit the company from a long-term basis. So graphic packaging is a supplier of fiber solutions food, to beverage, food service, and other consumer product companies. And these fiber-based solutions, they're really displacing what were previously plastic or foam packaging solutions. So this, again, you're tying these sustainability themes into value creation. Their top-line opportunity is absolutely driven by this tremendous shift that's happening as the biggest consumer product companies make these commitments and transition away from plastic and foam. Similar to Arcosa, and maybe even more profound an opportunity with the packaging. When we came across graphic packaging, they were not doing any sustainability reporting. And so there were companies that were getting better ratings that were still, to this day, are still supplying plastic solutions. And we thought, what a tremendous opportunity. Nobody knows that this is what this company is doing. There's a, a, a huge crowd of investors that would love to own this, but they're not even aware that this is what the company does. And so that was really a front and center topic for us. And and they did commence that reporting. And it's extremely robust, very thorough reporting shortly thereafter. But, you know, we've seen the company, again, not only, you know, initiate that sustainability reporting, but follow through with improvements to water usage, to reduced emissions, to reduced use of LDPE. And then they've made incredible strides on the diversity, equity, inclusion front. They actually last year were named by Forbes as one of the world's top female-friendly companies. And for two years running now, they've been named by Newsweek as one of America's most responsible companies. And so it's just been a real pleasure to be a shareholder of graphic packaging on a forward-looking basis. We think their cash flow is extremely well-poised to accelerate for a number of reasons, and we're very happy to be shareholders. What does it take to become one of the world's most women-friendly companies? I mean, that a majority, like a, they have a lot of women that work there and on the board and in, as employees or... 
I don't have the actual criteria for Forbes in front of me, but I mean, it is a reflection of their workplace. And and they've certainly, similar to Arcosa, they've done a good job transforming the boardroom and adding gender-based diversity to the boardroom. We think that they can go even further there. But, you know, those those improvements, while they've taken place in the boardroom, they've really been mirrored across the organization as a whole. It's definitely a consideration, not just diversity, but ESG broadly within how they think about compensation policies and practices. They've made some high so they've actually created new positions that are focused on diversity, equity, and inclusion. So I think it's just driven by kind of a host of different actions that the company has undertaken. Okay, we are out of time. <laughs> but as always, this has been a fascinating conversation. I've really enjoyed it. And keep up what you're doing. It's refreshing to see a woman activist investor in a world that's male dominated. So you bring a kind of a unique approach to the world of activism. So thank you for taking the time. This has been Ron Worrell and you've been listening to the Activist Investing Today podcast and we've been talking to Diane McKeever of Ides Capital. Thanks, Diane. Thanks so much, Ron.